Welcome to the Hanover Valley Podcast, a ministry of Hanover Valley Presbyterian Church. We are located at 133 Carlisle Street in downtown Hanover, Pennsylvania. Check out the rest of our website at hanovervalley.org. Thank you for listening. We're going to talk a little bit more today about how to fight our battles. Um, that is the essence of what this, in, in, in summary, what this book that we're looking at, Hebrews. We're looking at the book of Hebrews, and you can be turning to that if you have a Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, look and share it with someone, or use the one that's in the chair in front of you. This book written to, to a uh, church of believers in the early centuries who were just ready to give up, just ready to be done. Um, and just life is just, just get, they get beaten down, just feeling very discouraged about the whole process. And I'm, I, I don't know, I don't know about you. Um, well, I do know about you. I know, I know many of you. And there have been times where you just feel that way. I've been in your homes. I've, I've walked with you. That's the benefit of, you know, when I, when I grew up uh, and God called me into the ministry, one of the, one of the things I think I was committed to um, was I always wanted to I always wanted to be the pastor of a church where I could baptize and marry and bury all the people. I'm not trying to bury anybody, but the goal was to to walk with a group of people, to be in a context with people for a long period of time, so that I can know and you can know me and and part of the thing part of what what it is i know about you and that you know about me is that sometimes you walk through life and it's just hard and you just want to give up and you just want to be done you know i want to get off this merry-go-round i just you know um, i'm getting dizzy i'm about to throw up please can we slow this down and there's a sense where the writer of hebrews is writing to a group of christians writing to the church of his day saying how do you keep on keeping on how do you when you're ready to give up, how do you how do you hold on? How do you what's the next step when you don't want to take another step? If God is so good and his grace is so great, why is life so hard? And that's what right that's what the Hebrew writers is telling us over and over again. And we're gonna see another section of that. Now I'm gonna read chapter seven. Okay? Now I don't know if any of you read ahead. Because you know we're in a book, and I don't know if you read ahead. I encourage you to read ahead. Read the book through the week. It's helpful to kind of get a head start. I'm going to read chapter 7, okay? Now, I'm giving, you a little he- I'm giving you a little warning here. It's a longer chapter. The writer of Hebrews was masterful in his logic and what he's trying to accomplish, but this chapter is going gonna, gonna to get a little sticky in terms of how the language goes. So hang in there. Follow it along. I just went to see. I just went to see a, a show uh, last night, um, Shakespearean show, uh, Romeo and Juliet. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Romeo and Juliet. Familiar with Shakespeare? Did everybody have to read Shakespeare in school? If you, at some point, do they still do that anymore? Yep. When I was in school, we had to read two Shakespearean plays every year. Worst experience in my life. But, but that was then. Now, having come through all through high school, I read eight plays by Shakespeare and some other stuff, and you get used to it. You understand what he's about, and he actually, he actually um, there's, a, there's a method to his madness. His language, is, his language is wrapped around the meter. You familiar with meter? Roses are red, violets are blue. 
that kind of thing. I'm schizophrenic and so am I. That's the thing of, that's, you know, rose the red, violets the blue, you know. Um, that's a meter. That's a, and, and the meter of Shakespeare is the iambic pentameter. You remember that? And if you read it in meter, if you read it, if you read, if you read the words in the lilt of the music, the words come alive. And there's a sense where when you come to the scriptures, sometimes the language isn't as clear. And I'm just giving you a heads up. We're going to try to read the music into the words a little bit as we go through here. So follow along as we go. Chapter 7, Hebrews. Let's read. This Melchizedek was king of, Sal- of Salam and priest of God, most high. He met Abraham returning from his defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem, which means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch, Abraham, gave him a tenth of his plunder. Now, the law requires that the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in his body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the base of it, the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He of whom these things are said to belong to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of regulation as his ancestors, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. The law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And if it was not without an oath, and it was not without an oath, others became priests without an oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus became the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of these priests 
since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our needs. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, unlike the other high priests who he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has made who has been made perfect forever. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and thank you for your word. I pray that you would open its truth to our hearts, convince our minds and, our, and captivate us and, and lead us to, to step forward in you in faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. How'd you do reading that? Was it sticky? Did it get a little convoluted, wrapped around a little bit? It's like a big old run-on sentence in some, some respects. We're going to talk a little bit about it. And what I want you to kind of step back from the portrait a little bit. Step back from, step back if you think of, uh, I've used this illustration before, which my wife taught me as an art major. So when you go into a museum and you see all the paintings, the first thing you do is you don't walk up and look at it like this. When you go to a museum, you look at where they put the chairs. Where are the benches? They're in the middle of the room. They want you to step back and see the beauty, see the grandness, see the colors, see the vista first before you start examining the brushstrokes. And so that same thing, that same principle can be found when we look at the scriptures, is that let's step back from the chapter a little bit and look at what it's describing. It's describing, it's describing themes. It's describing the theme of the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood and what they were about. It's describing Jesus being a priest, we've talked about him being the sympathetic priest, sympathetic savior, talking about being the lasting priest. How can Jesus be a priest when it says that Jesus was a king and the kings came from the tribe of Judah? Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, but now he's a priest. How can he be both king and priest? There's never been a king and priest. Wait a minute. Yes, there has. The writer of Hebrews says there was one king who was priest. Way back in the book of Genesis. And if you have a minute, you can look at the book of Genesis, chapter 14. Chapter 14, real quick. At the end of that chapter, it says, chapter, seven, ch chapter 14, verse 17, after Abraham returned from defeating Ketilorimer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom, and the, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the, the kings of valleys. And then Melchizedek, king of Solom, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high and blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of the heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hands. And then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. That's the only thing we know about Melchizedek. That's it. Why does it matter? Why does what he's talking, why does Abraham, or why, why does the writer of Hebrews, I mean, why does the writer of Hebrews spend 
chapter upon chapter, talking about a character in the, in the life of Abraham, a, a, a person, a king priest in the time of Abraham. Why does it matter to him? It's only two verses of, of existence in the Scriptures. That's all the Hebrews had. That's all the Israelites had was that two-verse experience of the, of the history of Melchizedek in the life of Abraham. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is the significance of that moment is astronomical and really proves long before the law was ever written, long before the priesthood ever established, that God's original goal was far different than the, than the priest Levitical sacrificial system that existed. Let me stop there, take a breath, and let me tell you a story. When I was, uh, when I was in college... I, ha I had the privilege. Part of the way that I discovered that I was called to the ministry was um, in, my, in my church. We had a youth intern program where college students who felt des the, the desire of it, very similar to the DM dis uh, Disciple Makers um, college program where they can go into the ministry for a summer, you know, raise, raise support um, and, and do ministry full time for a summer. We had the same thing, but at a high school level to do youth ministry. And so my youth pastor um, offered that to me. And I was a youth leader for a number for a number of years. So when I was a when I was a freshman sophomore, I got to do that program twice um, for the summer. Becky actually got to do it one year too, and we and we were youth leaders. And so rather than getting a summer job, we were able to work for the church. It was a wonderful experience. And one of the ways that helped me to understand that I should be that I should go into the ministry, and one of the ways that God revealed to me a sense of calling to the to, to the ministry, to the full time ministry. One summer, there were there was four there were four or five of us as youth interns, and we, and things got a, we had a new youth pastor, at the time, uh, newish, it's not like he was brand new, but he was newish, meaning a couple of years in, and um, and and uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, there was a bit of an insubordination. Um, to the point where. Some of the youth leaders were actually presenting the idea that maybe the youth pastor shouldn't be a youth pastor. And that part of the reason maybe things weren't going so well in the youth program, it was actually going great at the time, but part of the stickiness that they were experiencing is the answer that they were putting out there, rumors and, and ideas and, and, uh, and uneasiness and mistrust was being put out by the youth by the youth leaders that had been a part of this internship program were spreading these rumors and ideas about the youth pastor, okay? Really horrible thing. That's insubordination. And so some of that came to light through some conflict, and ultimately, uh, ultimately there was this big meeting where the youth pastor, his wife, the, the youth leaders were all in a room, the session came in, and conflict was resolved through some Moments of strain. Uh, and it was, it was a good situation. It was all very well and healing, but there was a lot of tears being, uh, being uh, offered. There was a lot of pain being expressed. There was a lot of honesty. And a lot of the principles that we talked about in the conflicts class that, that we're talking about now were put out there. And it actually, oddly enough, you, know, you think, can you resolve conflict that difficult? Can you, is, there any, is there an answer to gossip? Is there an answer to insubordination? Yeah, well, we experienced it in that big old meeting that we had and with the help of some people who really had been through that. But it was very uncomfortable. And things were said and honesties were expressed and truths were admitted and, and, and sin was confessed in that room and, 
hurt was had. And so in, some of the interns were hurt in their, in their feelings and what they had done, and they were expressed hurt, and the youth pastor was hurt, and his wife was hurt, and the session was helping us work through that whole thing. It ended up being a wonderfully restorative process. And that was like halfway through the summer. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll never forget, um, the, next, the next morning, we have to then go back to work with this youth pastor and with this family and with this church after having had this tumultuous moment of confession and repentance and hurt and anger and, and unease in that experience. And I remember the next morning, we, we got there early like we're supposed to, and, and we were getting ready to start on whatever projects were the next, you know, getting ready for the youth work, youth, uh, uh, youth um, meeting for that week. And I'll never forget how the secretary of the church, we were in the office and we had a little youth office there. She said, the youth pastor wants to see you in his office at such and such a time. And we're like, oh, man. This is, this is horrible. I mean, what, is, what does he want? What's going to happen? I mean, can you imagine the feelings we're having at this point? We're, we just had this thing, but now the next morning comes, and is he, are we going to be, somebody going to get fired? Are, we, are things uneasy? We're going to have another meeting, and everybody's like, Ugh, oh, my gosh. So 9 o'clock came or whatever the time was, and we're all sort of in mass. we got four, you know, four of us, and we're all sort of like wandering over, and no, it's all silent, and his door's closed. You know, and we didn't even see him come in that day, so he must have already been there. So we, you know, we open up the door, we go into his office, and we don't see him at his desk, which was the right thing there. So we come in and close the door. But behind the door, he was there w and was using a super soaker and water guns and was began and just completely annihilated us and starts throwing water all around his chair, all around his office. I'll never forget that. Why do I tell you that story? Because I think that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell you in this chapter, tell us in this chapter. What we needed at that moment, what we needed the morning after the night before, was to be told through an experience, it's okay and everything's back to normal. It's to be told at that moment, what happened last night, I don't hold against you, and I still love you. And that was, a, that was a tangible, relational experience. It was done in a tactile fashion. It was, it was frivolous in relation to conflict. But what he was telling us, and I can't imagine the step of faith, the step of love, the step of compassion that he must have had to exhibit at that moment to do that after having been hurt by some words, having been hurt by the experiences of the youth interns at that point, but having gotten through the whole thing, what he was saying was, all that has gone before doesn't matter, and I love you, and our, and our relationship, and our lives, and our summer is still going to go forward, and everything is okay. Part of what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is, we need to be told, part of why we... Are, uh, part of why we di have difficulty in suffering and in hardship is that when we are in, in hardship, when we go through times of suffering, we are very tempted, especially in those times, but almost always every day, to think that, that 
or may, to think that, that God is against us. And if you don't think that God is against us, maybe here's what you think. I'm not sure what God thinks of me. Because if I was to ask you currently, right now, sitting where you are, what does God think of you right now at this moment, currently where you are? Some of you might go, well, I'm not sure. And some of the rest of you might go, hmm. And the writer of Hebrews is saying that when you have a temporary system of sacrifices, a temporary system where day by day we're offering sin offerings all the time. And then every year we got to come back and we got to offer our sin offerings at the, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, in order to be right with God, in order to feel right from God. And I've often wondered about that, is that every year the Hebrews were in a, in a position, that the, every year the Israelites, the people of God, through the sacrificial system established through the tribe of Levi with the sons of Aaron, all of those were the priests, and the purpose of that system was that the people would bring an, a lamb or a goat or a dove or a calf to the priest, the best of that they had to offer. The priest would then sacrifice it, would sprinkle the blood on the people as if, as if to say, not, not as if, but to say to the people that this lamb, this goat, this this bird has died in order to pay the penalty for the sins that you have incurred in the last year. And in order for you to be right with God, we're going to sacrifice this animal to make you right with God. And I often wondered in that system, annual system, every year we bring this over and over again, how long from the time when the priest offered the sacrifice, I'm the family bringing the sacrifice, I bring my lamb like a good Hebrew family, I bring, my, bring it, I lay it before the priest, and the priest slaughters it, and then sprinkles me and my family with the blood. How long from the moment that the, that the drops of blood hit my, hit my family and, the, and, and, and land on us, how long from that moment to when I walk back to my everyday life do I feel like maybe I'm not right with God yet? How long does it take for me to feel that maybe I'm not right? Or maybe how long does it take from that moment for me to actually do something wrong in the face of God and then to feel like, oh, well, I wasted, that. I wasted all that sacrifice. When you've got a temporary sacrifice, it gives the impression that I'm not sure how long, I'm, how, I'm not sure how long I can go, I'm not sure where I stand with God at any given moment. And that's why the writer of Hebrews in this chapter says the law was never meant to make you right with God. The sacrificial system was never meant to make you right with God. It was never intended. It was supposed to be an image. It was supposed to be a metaphor. It was supposed to be an imperfect system to create the desire, to create the craving, to create the utter magnetic attraction to a system that actually does work. Enter. A permanent priest, not a temporary priest, not a priesthood. And he, and he goes in, the, the images that we're talking about here, he talks about the incomplete 
ongoing sacrificial system. And then he also talks about the incomplete, ongoing, temporary priest system. Do you remember what he said at the end of the chapter? One priest after another priest after another priest. Nobody lasted. Everybody's name keeps, you know, off the list. Who's the next one in line until death? And on generation upon generation, that system was never intended to give us a sense that we are right with God. It was meant to create a longing for a system that would help you to know where you stand with God at any given moment in your life. Because like I said, you offer a sacrifice and then you walk away and on your way home, you're debating with your wife what to have for dinner and an argument breaks out and then you say some things you shouldn't have said and then now all that blood that's covering your sins washed away by the sin that you committed and now I don't know where I stand with God. And I asked earlier, what does God think of you? I asked you to think about this question. What does God think of you right now? What what does God think of you right now? And some of you, many of you, if you're honest, you think, well, he probably doesn't think too highly of me. Or others of you, I'm not quite sure. And either of those two answers is not the answer that God wants his people to live with. He wants you to know exactly what he thinks of you at every moment. And when you're operating out of a temporary, imperfect system, you can't ever really know. But what he's given us is not a temporary system. He's given us a priest. He's given us a priest, Hebrew says, that isn't by the order of Levi. That was the temporary one. It was the, it was the, it was, it was the metaphor for the real It was the secondary priesthood because that priesthood came into effect after Abraham. There was a priesthood happening before the time of Abraham. As a matter of fact, this grand old priest, this amazing priest, this this iconic priest that had no beginning and had no end and mysteriously shows up on the scene and mysteriously wanders away and who mysteriously receives a tenth of everything that Abraham had to offer at that moment and gives him a blessing, a blessing from God that says, you will be blessed and you will be my people. Of this this mysterious king priest, Melchizedek, he wanders on the scene and blesses Abraham before any of it started and then wanders off and then Abraham is told by the law of God to set up a priesthood that was incomplete, that was metaphoric, but it was supposed to point back to that original priesthood because even that original priesthood was greater than Abraham, greater than Levi, because you get the logic in the early part, the logic that he was going out of the early part. He says, because even Levi paid homage to him. Even Levi paid a tenth. How did he pay the tenth? He wasn't born yet. That's the point. He was inside Abraham. He was there paying homage to, Mel, to Melchizedek. So the idea is, what if Jesus isn't a priest by Levi, temporary, incomplete. He's a priest who lives forever by Melchizedek. The king priest, the king priest who began it all, the king priest who was it all in Jesus. He is the king from Judah and the priest from Melchizedek who never ends, who never dies. And his sacrifice was the only perfect, permanent sacrifice because animals cannot pay for sin for humans. 
contemporarily, metaphorically lead me to a need for it, but it can't ever do the job. But a Savior who sacrifices himself, a man, a man, a king, a priest, a man, a God-man, who gives his own life, to permanently free you and me from sin, from all of his children from sin. And now that permanent sacrifice from beginning to end, from the God-man sacrifice, that permanent sacrifice can tell you what God thinks of you right now if you are in him, if his blood is covering you, if his blood is your covering, is your sacrifice by faith. What does God think of you at this moment? He thinks that you are his perfect, unblemished, favored child of God. And the benefits of this, the benefits of that reality are not simply theological. Let me give you a couple of the benefits of that. Number one, when you've got that kind of priest, when you've got a permanent priest who is Jesus, the God-man, who has forgiven sins and paid for it all once and for all, the author says, once and for all, that once and for all sacrifice, that priest gives us confidence that we are perfect and pardoned. That when God looks at you through the blood of this priest, through the work of this priest, he sees you as perfect and pardoned. There is no blemish in you. So when God sees you, he sees you as his perfect child. There is nothing that you have done, nothing that you are currently doing, and there's nothing that you will do that can ever bring blemish or stain to that record. That is the benefit of having the righteousness of Christ. The law can't produce that, the Bible says. That's what he says it right here. The law cannot produce that. But Jesus, the priest, can produce it. And making you perfect in God's eyes. Perfectly pardoned. Not because he's merciful, but because he's just. You've heard me say this. God doesn't think you're perfect. God doesn't pardon you because he's merciful. Indeed, he is. But he pardons you because Jesus was the payment for sin. And to exact another payment on you after having exacted it on his son is two payments for one crime. Unjust. God is just. One payment, one crime. Jesus paid it for the crimes of his people. You walk away pardoned. Scott free. Second benefit, living in this priest, having this eternal priest gives you, gives us a total sense, a total abolition of guilt. Most of the time we walk around feeling uneasy. We feel part of the reason why when I ask you what does God think of you right now is because the guilt the unease, the sense of restlessness in your soul makes you think that what you've done or what you might do or what you did in the past or that, that, the, that the forgiveness didn't take, that the, that the atonement didn't work, that, you know, albeit Je- what Jesus did, you know, all, Jesus did a great job. Everything that he did, I got no bones with what he did, but maybe I wasn't sincere enough. Maybe I haven't repented enough. Maybe I haven't accomplished enough in order to have that forgiveness stick 
to have it take, to have it represent me. Maybe there's more I got to do. And in those moments, you are attaching your efforts to God's ability to pardon you. That when the judge says you're pardoned, you're done. You walk away, and that should remove any sense of guilt, shame, fear. When you have a permanent priest who accomplished it all based on his benefits, he intends for his children to feel, to embrace the sense of utter and sheer abolition of guilt and shame. With this kind of priest, thirdly, it undermines discouragement. Discouragement is a huge darkness that, over, that, overwhelms, that overwhelms the heart. Part of why we're discouraged is part of why we're discouraged all the time, I think, is because we're trying to make other things do for us what only Jesus can do. Only Jesus can satisfy me. Only Jesus can give me a sense of identity, a sense of, of, of shamelessness. Only Jesus can give me a sense of wholeness. And we're trying to find those sense of wholenesses in other things. Career, adventure, relationships, finance, control. All these ways. We're trying to find a sense of satisfaction. And when they don't satisfy, when they don't bring contentment, I walk around discouraged. I walk around in a pall of darkness. And what the, what the priest says is, find in me your wholeness. Find in me. Let me, be, let me be your destination rather than your road to whatever it else it is, that destination, because all of those destinations will not satisfy you and you'll be discouraged. But if I'm your destination, if I'm your wholeness, then you will experience all those other things in their proper place without discouragement. And then one pastor says, another benefit of having a priest that's forever and, and accomplishes my sin and is the, is the eternal high priest to my life and sacrifice my sin, he says, the, the other final benefit is it makes you playful. And I go, wait a minute. What do you mean makes you playful? He says, well, I'm not sure how else to describe it. It just gives you the ability to laugh at yourself. When you've been forgiven of your sin and when you've been given the righteousness of Christ and when you, you realize that it's not a result of anything you're doing that accomplishes your salvation, your sense of peace and your sense of shamelessness and your sense of having, be, having favor with God, when you realize that it isn't you, but it is the work of the Savior and the priest that does it, it gives you the ability to just not take yourself all that seriously. And so you become less, less embarrassed of yourself. You become less ashamed of yourself. You be able to laugh at your, at your whole world. And when someone says, you know, you really have a problem with this, you go, yeah, that's right. That's not even the half of it. If I could only tell you the whole story, how much time do you have? And really, this last one, I, the reason I liked it is because if you can't laugh at yourself, if you're overly embarrassed, if you feel a sense of unease, and you take yourself too seriously, it really tell, it's, a real, it's, a real, it's a real litmus test of whether you get the gospel. Because the gospel doesn't make you more self-concerned and self-aware. The gospel makes you less self-aware. It's not about thinking of yourself more and having a sense of self-worth. It's not about thinking about yourself less and not thinking too highly of yourself. It's just not thinking about yourself. 
and realizing that nothing I do contributes to this process, and it's all about Christ. It's all about thinking about Him. And so if there's something I discover in me that's broken, I can go, yep, Jesus knew that, and even more, and still paid for all of my sins. I'm progressing. Laughter is what this priest offers. Freedom from discouragement. Freedom from fear and an unease about what God thinks of you. Because he's the eternal priest. Once and for all. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you for being the priest we needed. For being the atonement we couldn't find. Being the king who offers sacrifice so that we might know we are right with you. Let it lead to laughter, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.